0: I am rather
1: busy. One night after a recording session, Brother Marquise was in his hotel room flipping
0: through TV channels. On HBO at that time, they were always playing the movie Full Metal Jacket.
2: What is your major malfunction, Numnuts?
0: That's Stanley Kubrick's
1: movie about the Vietnam War. And there's an infamous scene in that movie where two American soldiers are hanging out in a busy street. They're approached by a Vietnamese sex worker, while Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking plays in the background.
2: Okay. Ten each. What do we get for $10? Everything you want.
0: Everything, everything. And what did you get? I always thought that was funny. What did you get for $10? Anything you want. Oh, me so honey. Me so honey.
3: Me love love you you a long long time.
0: That That was just the most memorable part of that movie and it stuck with me and, you know, I would get the groupies in the room and be like, yeah, me so horny, yeah, yeah.
1: Marquise knew that this was the kind of catchphrase that gets stuck in your head like superglue. And for better or worse, it was absolutely on brand for the two live crew. So it clicked. This was going to make the perfect sample. Next, they actually had to get their hands on the audio. And that's where Mr. Mix came in.
4: At the time, there wasn't like no DVD that I could go to the store and go get Full metal jacket. We had to wait for the shit to come back on, um cable i was laying around waiting hoping that this movie would come back on for it to be recorded to vcr for me to be able to even get the footage for the situation it got recorded i took the vcr down to the studio and recorded the stuff off of the line outs of the vcr to run it into my machine sampled all her parts and this that and the other
0: What came next? Oh, telly Mr. Mix to get the, uh, the music, Firecracker.
1: Firecracker is this funk track from the 70s by a band called Mass Production.
4: So um, I just put those two things together. The record was already a hit before the first verse was said.
0: Yeah, I remember when he let me hear it on cassette. I was like, "Yeah, that's it." So I put the lyrics to it and voila. Sitting at home with my chick on hard. So I got the black book for a freak to call. Pick up the telephone, dial the seven digits. And, Yo, this more baby or you down. He drove that house, knocked on the door, not having no idea what the night had in store. Uh, not having no idea what the night had in store. Oh shit, I almost forgot. Not having no idea what the night had in store. <laughs> yeah, but those are some of the lyrics. Yeah, those are some of the lyrics.
1: The 2 Live crew had a few minor hits, but Me So Horny was a song that really made them a household name. It became a late 80s party anthem, the kind of song that fills a dance floor and gets stuck in your head. It was on the Billboard charts for over 30 weeks, and by the end of 1989, the band had sold over 500,000 copies. But if you have a big song, you also have the spotlight. And soon the 2 Live crew would find themselves attracting the kind of attention that they didn't want because people started to say the 2 Live Crew's music crossed the line, and they said that it was dangerous. And songs like Me So Horny would end up putting the 2 Live Crew on the radar of one of Florida's most notorious sheriffs. I'm Brandon Jenkins, and on this episode of Mogul, the backlash begins. So Horny was the first single from the Two Live Crews' third album, As Nasty as They Wanna Be. It was a release that took everything they'd done in their last two albums and turbocharged it. This album was going to be freakier and dirtier and raunchier than anything anyone had ever heard before.
4: What was the concept behind
1: Nasty as They Wanna Be? I just wanted to be Nasty as They Wanna Be. (laughs) Song titles like Fuck Shop, Put Her in the Buck, and Dick Almighty made the point perfectly. This was an album. All About Sex. The concept
4: was, again, you know, just expanding on what we did. I mean, it was about pushing the
1: envelope. Luke wanted this album to be huge, but Luke Records didn't have the money to promote it through billboards or ads in magazines or on television. Luke figured there was something else he could do, something that wouldn't cost much but could capture a lot of attention he was going to make sure that the album's cover art was impossible to ignore. The nastiest they wanted to be cover looks like this. You got the four members of the 2 Live crew lying belly down on the beach. They're dressed in all black with sunglasses, caps, and thick rope chains. Stood over each of the 2 Live crew is a woman in a thong bikini, framing them with the space between their legs. The women are all faced away from the cameras. And when all is said and done... Most people remember this album cover for being four butts in a row. And that was intentional.
4: When you go in there to look for a Michael Jackson record, you're going to see these fine-ass four women standing up on the beach like they always stand up on the beach in a G string. It's going to be very hard for you to resist that album cover. You became like, oh, my God, I got to buy this. Whether I like rap music or whether I know about these guys, I, I, I'll buy it for the, co- for the cover.
1: Rick Ross bought his copy of his Nasty as they want to Be when he was fourteen long before he became a platinum selling rapper, and he still remembers the cover art clearly
4: when I saw the artwork in the cover, if the vinyl wasn't in there, I wouldn't even been upset the first time. I would have bought it just for the artwork, and right now, I want to go get the cover reprinted as I'm sitting here thinking and put it in a frame because that was legendary and to me of course the women were beautiful of course of course the rope chains was dope of course but to me man they was representing Miami man they was laying on the beach like yo we at home this is where we live this is us 24-7 and that's what I took from it damn man we from the crib it's the crib this Miami. so if you didn't know then Oh man, this is special. This is beautiful. Luke helped paint that picture without even saying it.
1: The combination of a catchy song and an iconic cover paid off. Nasty as a wannabe went platinum. And the 2 Live crew became the first Southern rap group to achieve that status. And with all this newfound fame and attention, life started to change for the members of the 2 Live crew.
0: Successful records can change lives. Make the quality of your life better. You know? Back then, you know, the clothes and money uh, had a little jewelry around your neck, you know, and f- in Fresh Town, a lot of beautiful women, a lot of shit going on. You no, know, hey, changes things.
1: By the early '90s, the Two Live Crew started to get so well known that people who'd never heard their music knew who they were. The four dudes with endless rhymes about dicks were prime time, and that was clear when Chris Rock parodied Luke in an SNL skit. <laughs> In this skit, Chris Rock copies the 2 Live crew's stage clothes. He's got a bandana tied around his head, thick rope chains around his neck, and a varsity jacket with leather sleeves. It was like Luke and the 2 Live crew had become a Halloween costume. A meme before there were memes. And to top it all off, they even spawned a parody act. They called themselves the 2 Live Jews. And they flipped me so horny into this. Fueled by the success of the Two Live Crew, Luke Records was starting to emerge as a true hip hop powerhouse. Luke signed acts like Poison Clan, MC Shy D, Disco Rick, and H Town. So you know that means I gotta play some Knock in the Boots.
4: I'll give me some good love.
1: Luke, Two Live Crew, Luke Records, they were all on the come up. But with increased exposure came increased scrutiny. And some people within the hip-hop community started to question whether the 2 Live crew were simply a novelty act. Here's a clip of Spike Lee critiquing them on an old episode of Yo! MTV Raps.
5: They're not going to be around for the long run because if you just talk about if all the output of your creativity is just... You're going to sell. You're going to be here for a year or two years and you're be out of here because you have to be more about that. If people can get tired of you talking about just want to
1: point out that we didn't add those zany bleeps. They're part of the original show.
6: So, I mean, let's give them some credit for at least being consistent. focused and specific and, consistent. and let's cut this short and let's go into the video.
1: It wasn't just rap fans like Spike who were thinking about the 2 Live Crew's music. It was turning the heads of people who definitely weren't down with hip-hop.
7: Oh, go by Bob, but last name is DeMoss, like, like DeMoss on the tree.
1: Back in 1989, Bob DeMoss was working for Focus on the Family a Christian nonprofit organization. You might have heard of Focus on the Family. They're known for their strong stance against same-sex marriage, abortion, and the rights of same-sex couples to adopt children. It's a very conservative organization, and it's a very powerful one. At its peak, Focus on the Family was raising over $100 million a year to further its agenda. Bob was focused on the family's youth and culture expert. His job was to educate Christian parents on what their children might be watching or listening to. As part of the role, Bob released a video called Learn to Discern, Help for a Generation at Risk. It's sort of like a TED Talk, but its purpose is to inform parents about the dangers of popular music.
7: We're going to take a listen to some popular music. We've broken the themes of these songs into five categories. First, we'll look at suicide. Secondly, the occult. Third, what passes for comedy today. Fourth, violence. And finally, explicit sex in some music.
1: And in the late 80s? Rap was on Bob's radar.
7: Well, so that's the fun thing about in the old days. Like as I would go through the store looking at hip hop albums or rap, you know, I'd come across artists like Schooly D that were positive, and you know, and, but then I would be seeing some kids, and always gravitate towards the kids. They'd be flipping through stuff, and I'd look at what they were looking at. And then I would ask the store owner, okay, what's hot and so on. And I can remember this one guy looked at me, he sizing me up like I'm a narc or something. And I said, no, no, I'm just a music fan and I'm kind of curious. Let me, let me uh, just tell me a little bit about what's, oh, you don't want to, you know, i mean, just, you know, it's underground. Said, well, just tell me about it. What? Well, you got the ghetto boys and you got NWA and And I said, well, okay, so are they trending or something? Yeah, oh, yeah, they're really moving with the kids. Okay, well, so I'd go over and I'd buy the Ghetto Boys and I'd buy N.W.A.
1: And it was on one of those trips to the record store that Bob picked up a copy of the album with four butts on the cover, as nasty as they want to be.
7: And as I was listening to it, I thought to myself, there is no possible way, I mean, I just, I cannot fathom that parents would actually buy this for their kid knowingly. The day
1: after he bought the album, Bob had to take a flight. So he figured he'd put his time in the air to good use.
7: He'd write down the lyrics from as nasty as they wanna be. Sat down on you know sardine class, I'm sandwiched between two ladies, and I've got my my Sony Walkman, you know, with headphones and a yellow legal pad, and I'm transcribing the lyrics to two live crew and this lady's giving me this look. She's looking at my paper. She doesn't know that I'm transcribing lyrics. She thinks I'm some kind of pervert. And uh, she's looking over at me and she's looking at the exit, right? Uh,
1: Do you remember the lyrics you were transcribing that would have put her into sort of alarm or shock?
7: Uh, yeah, it, the song was called Bad Ass Bitch. And the lyric was, my dick was hard and she was hot like a heater. By the looks of her mouth, she was a dick eater. You raggedy bitch, don't play dumb put your dick in, my mouth, in your mouth and make this motherfucker come. At that point, I thought, well, I just, you know, in the interest of higher education, I thought I would put together a lyrical analysis and fax it to the media and just say, this is what the album contains. Because this is one of those examples of... Uh, socially irresponsible uh, material. And so I found that just to listen to the record one time, there were 87 descriptions of oral sex. Put your lips on
1: my dick and suck my
7: asshole too. There are 117 explicit references to male and female genitalia. Fuck
0: that pussy and make it mine.
7: 226 uses of the word fuck. 163 uses of the word bitch when referring to women.
0: You'll be my bitch, not a
7: dirty hoe. They talked about male ejaculations nine times. You would
0: drink my cum and nothing more.
7: Group sex four times. We
0: all got
5: naked no time to front.
7: Oral and anal sex. Let me
5: stick my dick in behind.
7: So I'm thinking to myself, what 8, 10, 12-year-old you know, what are they going to do when they listen to this album not just once, not just twice, because you don't buy an album and listen to it once. You'll listen to it 10 times, 20 times, 100 times. So you have to do a multiplier by that. So if you're listening to oral sex 87 times and you listen to the album, that's once. If you listen to an album one time, that means that a kid who's 10 years old has 870 images in their head if they listen to the album 10 times. It'd be an
1: understatement to say that Bob DeMoss wasn't a fan of as nasty as they want to be. But it wasn't just conservatives like Bob who had a problem with the 2 Live Crew's lyrics.
5: That's the thing about 2 Live Crew lyrics. Just gratuitously, I want to say awful, it is not just about the act of sex, but often this violent act of sex, the dehumanizing of the woman, literally as object.
1: This is for Dara Hadley. She's a music professor at Oberlin College. For Dara grew up in South Florida, and when she was a teenager, she listened to the two live crew and danced to their songs at the Pac Jam. But as she got older and started really paying attention to what they were saying, she heard things that alarmed her.
5: The the really kind of base and visceral, not just that we're talking about sex, but we're really talking about um, a punishing, bruising kind of sex. Which is fine if it's two consensual people saying that that's what they want to do, but like enshrining it in lyrics and in song, regardless of intent, it does give it a level of endorsement because you're saying it. You know what I mean? Even
1: though Fredera has problems with the two live crew, she also has issues with Bob DeMoss who focus on the family. And she wonders, what motivated them to put the two live crew under the magnifying glass? Was the issue really the lyrics? Or the fact that these young black guys were the ones saying them?
5: Like, there are any number of things in this culture that are crazy as hell, terrible as hell, that you can pick. What is actually your intent behind this? And it just feels like, you know, this sort of political flex because you can and because you don't think that these young Black people should have the space to be brash, to be obscene. That's what it feels like. And I'm getting, like, heated talking about it. Like, these loud, ghetto ass black kids need to be put back in their container.
1: In the fall of 1989, Bob DeMoss sent his transcription and lyrical analysis of As Nasty as They Wanna Be out to the press. And it's now that this thing really starts to snowball. Because Bob's work ended up in the hands of an infamous Florida attorney with a track record for waging war against raunchy entertainers.
8: My name is Jack Thompson. I uh, am from Cleveland, Ohio. I've lived in Miami the home of Two Live Crew, uh, since 1976. Jack's an
1: attorney, and in his own words, a radical conservative. And just like Rick Ross still has a clear memory of seeing the cover of as nasty as they want to be, Jack vividly remembers the first time he found out about the Two Live Crew.
8: Well, I didn't know who Luther Campbell, a.k.a. Luke Skywalker, was until New Year's Day, January 1990, when I went to a friend's house Uh, for uh, New Year's Day dinner. And he gave me the transcribed lyrics of an album uh, called As Nasty As They Want to Be. And uh, the lyrics were rather disturbing and uh, they were clever.
1: Do you have specific call-outs of lyrics or commentary on the album that you found, this is too much for kids, this is too much for young
8: people? Well, you know, the ones that I remember, it's been a while, you know, lick my asshole till your tongue turns doo-doo brown that's you know that's real close to elvis's love me tender
1: jack had a history of going after things he didn't think belonged in the airwaves in the mid-80s he started a campaign to have a miami shock jock named neil rogers kicked off the air thompson said that rogers show was obscene but thompson's tactics were so extreme and over the top that they resulted in him being banned from talking about or coming within 500 yards of rogers and now jack thompson had his sights set on a new target the two live crew
8: So what I did, I sent the transcribed lyrics, some of which were not accurate. So I corrected them based upon what I could uh, hear and sent them to all 67 sheriffs in the state of Florida. And my assertion to them was that this was an album that fell below the legal standard laid out in case law and also in Florida statutes that it was sexual material harmful to minors.
1: You might be asking yourself what motivates someone to go to all this effort. To mail out nearly 70 letters and send them all across the country. And all because of a rap group? Well, the thing to you know about Jack is that he sees himself as a sort of superhero. You had an interesting way of identifying yourself when corresponding with your opponents during this battle and other battles. The okay.
8: Batman thing?
1: Batman. <laughs> the Batman thing. Okay. Back when all this was going down, Tim Burton had just released a new Batman movie. And Jack saw a lot of himself in the Cape Crusader. So much so, that when he wrote to his rivals, he'd sometimes include a copy of his driver's license with a cutout of Batman's face stuck over his own face. Jack also drank from a Batman mug and wore a Batman watch. Why'd you
8: choose Batman? Because of the metaphor. I'm a guy outside government who, like Bruce Wayne in Gotham, felt that sometimes the government needs to be helped or prompted to do the right thing, as Spike Lee would say.
1: So Jack sends these letters out to Every single sheriff in the state of Florida. In the beginning, not a lot of people took Tops's campaign seriously. But there was one sheriff from Broward County who didn't see this thing as a waste of time. His name was Nick Navarro. and if you know your late '80s reality TV,
8: you might have heard of him. Bad boys, what's he was kind of the inspiration to the uh, uh, "Bad Boys." Bad Boys, what you gonna do? The cop show. And a lot of those episodes, maybe all of them, were filmed in Fort Lauderdale. So he was known as Nick at Night, because his goal seemed to be to get his face on TV anywhere, anytime.
1: If you saw an early episode of Cops, chances are you saw Nick Navarro. Nick was a sheriff of Broward, a county to the north of Miami. He's got this shock of white hair and an intense stare. And when you watch him, you get the sense that he really likes arresting people.
4: Everyone here goes to jail. Everyone here, book them all. Every one of you.
1: And for his next big bust, Nick Navarro wanted to take down the two live crew. So Nick took Jack Thompson's transcriptions of the lyrics from As Nasty as They Wanna Be and presented them to a Broward County Circuit Court judge. The judge found the lyrics to be, quote, probably obscene. And that was enough for Nick. He dispatched his deputies and started seizing copies of the album from local record stores
8: Then it became a national story The group 2 live crew has wrapped itself
0: in one of the biggest controversies since Elvis first started swaying his hit The album nasty as they want to be is just too nasty for many communities
6: If
5: anyone sells it and it is obscene, they'll go to jail Simple as that
1: Navarro and his cops seizing records became a big problem for the 2 Live Crew, because you can't make money if you can't sell records. And Nasty as they want to be, was the group's biggest hit yet. After working so hard to make it big and put Southern hip hop on the map, the group was suddenly faced with this new roadblock: the law. Brother Marquise felt the 2 Live Crew were being called out now because the people who were listening to their new album looked very different to the crowds they first played to at the Pack Jam.
0: As long as we were making this music, man, and it stayed in the black neighborhood, it was cool. Once it made me so horny, it started blowing up. The white kids started getting into it and start taking it home and losing their virginity over this shit. It became a problem. Once we were listening to it in our neighborhood, cool. Fuck y'all, do it. You, kill yourself over there. Have sex till you die. Shit start getting into the suburbs. White kids start playing it. And then and, and, and <laughs> parents were like, what the fuck's this? fuck out of here. We can't have that. We can't have that.
1: After the break, the battle over the two live crew's music spills into the courtroom, and the group fights for their future.
6: Um, If you can just introduce yourself by your name, and what you do. I'm Bruce Rogo. I'm a lawyer here in Fort Lauderdale. I've been a lawyer for 55 years. I've represented doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, rich men, poor men, beggarmen, thieves, uh, in civil and criminal matters. But Bruce had never represented a rap group before,
1: until Luke Campbell came to him and asked if he'd take their case. Luke needed someone to find a way to stop Nick Navarro from seizing the records. And Bruce had a plan.
6: We were going to file a lawsuit ourselves to declare that the record was not obscene. I saw this as an opportunity to take the initiative and have him be the plaintiff and sue the sheriff uh, because it was a sheriff that was going around trying to to stop the sale of the records. It's a bold move,
1: going on the offensive and taking on this big-time sheriff. But the way Rogo saw it, the Tulav crew couldn't lose. See... Up until this point, a lot of music had been labeled obscene by politicians and protesters. But no music had ever been declared legally obscene in the United States. And no musicians had ever been stopped from selling their music. As far as Rogo was concerned, this thing was a slam dunk.
6: I thought this case was a winner no matter what, no matter where. I thought that there was no way this case could be lost. I thought we'd be fine. To win this case... Bruce had to prove in a court of
1: law that as nasty as they want to be is not obscene. To do that, he had to show that the album passed something called the Miller Test. That's the legal standard that the Supreme Court uses to decide whether or not something can be labeled obscene. There's three parts to the Miller Test. For something to be deemed obscene, it has to, one, appeal to the prurient interest. Or in layman's terms, it has to make you horny. Two, it has to describe sex or excretory functions in a patently offensive way. So basically, it has to be gross. And three, it has to have no literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. So it's just trash. If Rogo could prove that Nassie's a wannabe passes the Miller test, he'd win the trial. On May Fourteenth, 1990, the time came for Bruce Rogo to make his case. There's old footage of Rogo and the crew on the steps outside the Broward County Courthouse in Fort Lauderdale. In front of them, a huddle of reporters gathered to ask questions. One asked Luke what kind of an impact Navarro's actions had had on the group.
3: Yeah, well, we, we, we were supposed to do something for MTV at Daytona Beach and they canceled. I mean, you know, it's, it is affecting the group and us, you know, to do a lot of things that we normally do. And then we are, you know, we are losing sales in record stores where record normally would be in there and they, people
8: can't purchase it now. Hey, back to your previous statement
1: After they finish talking to reporters, the group turn and walk away. They're smiling and joking. They look relaxed, and they look confident. If they win, all their troubles will go away, and their album will be back on the shelf. But if they lost, if they'd lost, they'd be fucked. The music would be declared legally obscene in Broward County, so they wouldn't be able to sell it, and they wouldn't be able to perform it. And if Broward found it obscene, other places might follow suit. In short, if the ruling went against him, the two live crew could be finished. To stop that from happening, Bruce Rogo had to prove that the two live crew passed the Miller test. And he set about doing that by comparing as nasty as they want to be with other things that are readily available in Broward County. The idea was to find things that were so scandalous that they made the two live crew look vanilla. And Rogo found what he was looking for
6: in a local sex shop. I wanted the most outrageous magazines, the most outrageous books, the most outrageous videotapes. So now, basically, I'm getting paid to watch the best pornography I could find. Rogo brought all the materials he gathered to court and started to present them. One of them was a tape uh, that had three vignettes of women masturbating. And they were fantastic. So I I brought that tape in. And, of course, we had a video recorder in the courtroom. And I put on all the other stuff, the magazines, all that other uh, material. And then I played the videotape. And it it was spectacular to watch it in the federal courtroom with these three women masturbating. And there were three vignettes. And after the first grouping... I said to the state, uh, I said, Judge, the other two are just like this one, and if the state will agree, we'll just put this into evidence, the whole tape, and I don't have to play the other two vignettes. And, and he was appreciative, and the state realized that they should agree, although I think most people in the audience wanted to see all three. My, my joke was, was that if I'd asked the audience to stand up, the men all would have had erections. It would have been embarrassing. I mean, it, it was spectacular.
1: On the other side, the prosecution had to prove that the music was obscene, that it failed the Miller test. And the two live crew's choice of
6: words started to come under scrutiny. There's one word that I'll tell you about, too, that that became a feature at the trial. Splack. Do, have you heard, uh, you know, the word splack? Well, what, what do you think splack means? Splack. Yeah, that was stupid. Splack is a word that Brother Marquise liked to use in a bunch of his rhymes. And I remember... Uh, saying, well, what's splack? And he said, well, he said, you know, splack is when you're hot and she's hot, that you're wet and she's wet, and you're together just going at it hard and hard. Splack, splack. Splack means to
0: splack. I mean, you could splack a car. You can splack a girl. It means to get it done. Get it done. Whatever you're doing, yeah, I'm going to splack that. I'm going to splack that girl. I'm finna splack a car. Splack pack. Yeah, they splacking splackin broads. Splacking chicks. Like smashing.
6: And I thought it was kind of onomatopoetic. I thought it was just great. Oh, you hit each other. Bam, bam,
0: bam, bam. Yeah.
6: The prosecution
1: brought this language up because they thought it was shocking and that it was obscene. But Rogo says that
6: most people in the court just thought it was funny. And of course, everybody just broke up in the courtroom, although not Judge Gonzalez, You know, he's about five or six years older than I, a very conservative guy, uh, although liberal in many ways, but this was a little, a little much for him.
1: And that was bad news for Bruce Rogo and the Two Live crew. Because in this trial, there was no jury. The verdict would be decided by the judge and the judge alone. So everything would come down to what Judge Gonzalez, a guy who was born in 1931, thought of the 2Lab Crew's lyrics, what he thought of Splack, and what he thought of songs like Dick Almighty and Fuck Shop. On June 6th of 1990, Judge Gonzalez was ready to share his decision. Here's Jack Thompson.
8: Well, I got a phone call, I think mid-morning, from the court, and they said the judges got a ruling, uh, come on up to Broward County if you want to, to hear what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this was, I mean, everybody was there. CNN was there um, in the courtroom. On outside the courtroom, all the major networks were there, it was a big deal. And it was a courtroom that was absolutely filled. We all got in the courtroom. The judge comes in. He says to the uh, security, lock the doors. And I thought, this is interesting. The judge says, you all in the media write about the First Amendment as if you know what it is. I'm going to teach you some about the First Amendment. Lock the doors and read the opinion. <laughs>
6: And then he passed out uh, copies of his decision. It was like 50 pages or so where he went through Miller versus California and obscenity. I get the copy and I just look at the end because I don't care what he's saying. I just want to know what the end is. And I saw at the end that he found it was obscene.
1: Here's what Judge Gonzalez said about Two Live Crew's music. It's an appeal to dirty thoughts and the loins, not to the intellect and the mind. Gonzalez went on to say, It cannot be reasonably argued that the violence, perversion, abuse of women, graphic depictions of all forms of sexual conduct, and microscopic descriptions of human genitalia contained on this recording
8: are art. And it said, uh, in in effect, as a matter of law, uh, this album is obscene. How'd you feel? I was a, I was thrilled.
6: Jack Thompson might have been thrilled, but Luke definitely wasn't. He was outraged. He was he was waving the the opinion. You know, it's a piece of it's toilet paper. I think he said it's, it's you know he was very upset about
8: it. So I'm outside the courtroom with John Zarella, of CNN, and he's being I'm being interviewed, and he said, "What do you think about this?" And I said, "So if it's obscene in Broward County, I got to tell you, it's obscene in L.A." Uh, It's obscene in Topeka, it's obscene in Cincinnati, it should be obscene everywhere.
1: That's where the news footage ends. But according to Jack, something else happened on the courtroom steps right after.
8: And just then Luther Campbell came up behind us and said on camera, into the microphone, Jack, get some pussy.
1: The verdict was unprecedented. Never before had an album been declared obscene. Navarro, Jack Thompson, and Bob DeMoss had won as nasty as they want to be, was banned in Broward County. After a loss like that, a lot of people would have just walked away. But not Luke. He made a decision. Not only was he not going to stop making the music, not only was he not going to stop performing the music, he was going to shove it right in the judge's face.
2: Luther decided that he wanted to punch back at the judge who made this ruling.
1: Coming up after the break, The two live crew and the Broward County police face off, and Luke ends up in handcuffs. A lot of the story that we're um, trying to tell takes place basically in the late 80s and early 90s. um.
5: Ooh,
2: at my prime. At my prime. I can remember that time very, very
1: uh, vividly. This is Ira Wolf, a.k.a. Tony the Tiger. Back in 1990, Ira was a DJ, and he used to host events at a nightclub called Club Futura in Broward County. Ira knew Luke from the local music scene. And fun fact, he's a limo driver in the Miso Horny video, the white dude with the mullet. Luke called Ira up after the trial. He had an idea. He wanted to perform nasty as they want to be right in Judge Gonzalez and Nick Navarro's backyard. Uh, Luther
2: decided that he wanted to punch back at the judge who made this ruling. And he called me up and said, hey, Tony the Tiger, do you want to host the show that night? Which I replied gleefully, of course, this is going to (laughs) be, this is going to be an event.
1: An event that would go on to change the course of popular music history. And one that would go down as one of the most controversial and iconic shows in hip hop. Not that you would ever have thought that if you saw Club Futura, because iconic is not the word most people would use to describe that place.
2: It was just a strip mall type of a a building and that was turned into a nightclub. There were bigger, more glamorous clubs um, that were million-dollar clubs. This was a probably a $250,000 club, you know. It was it was really kind of a dump in a way. It was past its prime. The building was old. Air conditioning barely worked. When the place was packed, it was hotter than hell. It, 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 we had no rules in there either. I mean, there were people that would do certain drugs, whatever, in there, and, and nope, the bouncers wouldn't kick them out, you know. It was just... It was just a place where you can go inside and be yourself and do whatever you want and not have any fear that you're going to get kicked out or arrested, basically.
1: But on the night of the two live cruise performance, there was a threat of arrest for Luke and Ice and Marquise and Mr. Mix because Sheriff Nick Navarro had told them, if you perform nasty as they want to be in Broward County, I will take you down.
2: So to circumvent that, we decided to make it into a private show, mm. I guess, kind of like a sex club type of thing. You know, um, everyone that walked through the door had to sign a a paper saying that no matter what goes on here tonight, you will not be offended and you will not, um, you know, press charges against the club in any sort of a
1: way. The hope was those pieces of paper would protect them from the local cops. And the cops? They were out in force that night, patrolling outside the club and watching as about 400 fans signed their waivers and went inside Club Futura to see the 2 Live crew. And now we're back to the moment that started this season of Mogul, the night of June 10th, 1990, the night the 2 Live crew performed live at Club Futura. Ira had a video camera with him, and he recorded the events that took place that night. So what you're gonna hear now is audio from a wild stage show and the even crazier events that followed.
2: Well, once I jumped on stage and the lights came on, everybody knew it was time. Mr. Mix started playing with his drum machine. He had an SP-12 sampler. So he was getting ready for that. And the crowd just started screaming so loud that I could barely even hear myself what I was saying. They just wanted it to happen. It was two live crew, two live crew, two live crew. And whatever I said didn't shut them up. I had to scream over them. Ladies and gentlemen from Miami, Florida, all the way to Broward County, For the first time anywhere, it's as nasty as they want to be live at Club Futura. And bam, they jumped on stage and it was just mayhem, mayhem, mayhem. It was like a bomb that was lit, that was getting ready to explode, and these people were the bomb. They just wanted an explosion, and the explosion happened. They came out. The place was on fire. You know, you know, not literally, but figuratively. I really didn't think the club was going to hold up. I like said to, (laughs) I said to the producer man, this place is going to burn down tonight. The roof is going to blow off of this this place. And it it almost did. That's the feeling I got. I I wasn't nervous, but I was just like, man, this club can't take this. This is crazy.
1: During the show, Luke also took the opportunity to fire back with his own argument against Judge Gonzalez's ruling. Luke wanted Mr. Mix to showcase his artistry. So Mix started cutting and scratching faster and faster, working the crowd into a frenzy. Luke had a message for Sheriff Nick Navarro too, and he wanted everyone in the crowd to help him deliver
3: it.
2: So everyone was throwing out there, fuck Navarro, fuck, fuck Navarro, fuck Navarro, fuck, fuck Navarro. Navarro,
3: Navarro, 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 Navarro."
2: So the show ended up finishing. Everyone was happy. Uh, It was the biggest night in Futura's history. We ended up all in the office. We were celebrating. We are having a few drinks, just relaxing. And uh, Luther and the boys said, okay, uh, we're going to go. It's getting kind of late. Got something to do tomorrow. We have a show, so we're going to be leaving. So I said to them, listen, I'm going to follow you guys out. And I'm gonna follow you guys halfway home just to make sure that nothing happens because there are police, there were police surrounding the club the whole night. Less than a block away from the club, the lights come on from three Broward Sheriff's cars and pull us over. And I'm in the car behind them. They jump out. Uh, I actually have this on tape because I kept the tape rolling. I had a portable. Cassette machine. We're looking at 3:30 here in Hollywood, Florida. Two live crew after a performance at Club Futura. Apparently, getting arrested. Getting arrested. Uh-huh. Luke in the back seat of a van, looking rather disheveled. If you had just driven by and saw them yank this guy out of the car, throw him up against the, the back of the police car, and spread his legs out. You would have assumed, oh, the guy is in a stolen car, or he had just robbed a bank, or did something terrible, uh, some major felony. Luke has handcuffs
3: on him, being arrested for obscenity. Luther, do you feel like you did anything wrong? Not really. It's America.
2: They said, uh, Luther Campbell, Scam- you're going to jail tonight.
7: Uh, Did you violate the law? I guess so, that's why I'm getting arrested.
3: You know, they didn't do anything, it but up, you know, keep it up.
7: why were they arrested? I don't know, they just played a gig at my club.
3: A at my club. Alan Jacoby and Bruce Rogo. <sighs>
4: so courteous.
1: Next time on Mogul, Luke makes his case on national TV and hip-hop soul hangs in the balance.
0: This is representative of the black culture. It's not... It's ludicrous that they can insinuate that the black community has lower moral standards. It's ludicrous. It's wrong. It's a lie. It's a bald-faced lie.
1: If this was not obscene, then nothing could be obscene. Can't wait for next week's episode to drop? No problem. You can now stream the entire season for free exclusively on Spotify. Search for Mogul inside the Spotify app and hit the follow button. Mogul is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This episode is produced by Wallace Mack and Saeed Tijon Thomas, with help from Gabby Bulgarelli. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music supervision by Matthew Bowl and Liz Fulton. This episode was scored by Nana Quibena. Theme music and additional scoring by So Wiley and Bobby Lord. Our credits music is by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk. Fact-checking by Soraya Shockley. Follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and the behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at mogul. My name is Brandon Jenkins. See you all next episode.
2: Till this day, I still feel as if as nasty as you want to be is a work of art. It's up there with the Mona Lisa.